Shall we begin? Why not? Welcome to Frankie Sense and More. It's like she's got a whole lot of goodness for you with a little bit of sass. Frankie, did you just say... She sure did. Not to mention, along with... Whoops. Join us now as Frankie Picasso and her new co-host mix it up with authors, musicians, and interviews with world-changing people. Let's begin. Okay, let's begin now, because it only makes sense. Well, hello there, and welcome to Frankie Sense and More. I am here with my co-host, Frederick Bye. Hello, and hello. Again, <laughs> we are going to bring you a great show. We do have a good show for you today. Our guests are Dr. Beth Darnell. She is a clinical associate professor in the Division of Pain Medicine at Stanford University. She's going to be coming up shortly. And Jacob Kramer, he's a high school student from Cleveland who founded a nonprofit. Now, at first blush, you might think that these two guests have nothing in common, but I think they have a whole lot in common. But first, Here's Fred with our positive global goals moment. Yes, I mean, today we have an interesting story, and it's all about the global goal number four, which is quality education. What's more important than quality education? And this guy does something that I love, 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 because I love to read. And this barbershop gives money back to kids who read aloud during their haircut. That's right. Uh, the barbershop is called the Fuller Cut Barbershop in Michigan, and he gives discounts to kids and uh, who read the books aloud to their barbers while they're getting their hair cut. And uh, oftentimes the kids end up with a $2 discount, and it's pretty cool. And, you know, he says that they get compliments from teachers all the time and that his community has really, really embraced the idea. And also I, I think it said something really, really cool, and I will – quote him here he said he says when when little kids that don't really don't really know how to read or what's going on see an older kid in the chair with a book and then grab a book too that's what's important because when a kid thinks it's cool to read that's a gift and that is true i learned i personally learned so much from reading and um also, he, he ends up – he ends the, the interview saying, if we can get kids to come back to the Fuller Cut as adults in college and they tell us, because of you guys had us read here, it made me want to be a writer or journalist. That's really the end goal. That's and, so cool. Yeah. So that's fabulous. I love to read. I believe in reading. It, Reading changes the world, changes ourselves. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think girls and boys read different things. I mean, I, I had sons and daughters and, you know, my boys like science books. They like, you know, real stuff. They like to read about nature and, and girls, you know, they like to read fiction and, and different kinds of things. So I think we like to read different things, but, you know, definitely it's a <laughs> great, great uh, community effort to, to help children read. And I think that's, that's terrific. Yeah. Kudos yeah. To, to the barbershop there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's introduce uh, Dr. Beth. Now, she is a pain psychologist and scientist. Dr. Beth Darnell is her name. She's also the author of the Opioid Free Pain Relief Kit and Less Pain, Fewer Pills, Avoid the Dangers of Prescription Opioids and Gain Control Over Chronic Pain. She's a past president of the Pain Society of Oregon and is a current co-chair of the Pain Psychology Task Force at the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Her NIH-funded research investigates mechanisms of pain catastrophizing and the effectiveness of a single session pain catastrophizing treatment that she has developed. Wow. Please welcome Dr. Beth. We're going to call you Beth if that's okay. 
absolutely. And Frankie and Fred, thank you so much for having me. Oh, awesome. it's, a, it's our pleasure. Yeah. Um, you know, in your book, you seem to advocate for pain patients not to use o- opiates. Uh, can you explain your position on this? Yeah, so, so here is, it's a little more nuanced than that. My position is that everybody should have access to the right information so that Mm -hmm. they can best control their own experience, reduce their own distress and their own pain. And by doing so, they will need less medication. So so despite the titles of my book, I'm actually not anti-opioid, but I do think, and, and almost everyone agrees, that it's in everyone's best interest to take fewer medications. And I am highly invested in providing a pathway for people to be able to do that so that even if they take opioids going forward, they'll be able to make informed choices because they understand the risks and the benefits. And they're able to use different strategies that help them need and use as little of the medication as possible. And then that helps reduce their risks and their side effects and it allows them to have more control over what's happening in their lives. I can agree with that. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't think I've ever said this on air before. I have been on, I have been on opioids for 15 years after a motorcycle crash. And mm. I got down from like enormous amounts to as little as I possibly think I can. And, and even to the point where I said to my doctor, I, I'm ready to go off. And, you know, and she looked at me and she said, are you crazy? Like you're, you won't even be able to walk around now. You know, I don't really talk about my pain that often, but Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always, it's always there. I'm also a hypnotherapist. So I do understand how to, you know, hypnotize for pain, how to use, you know, hypnosis as, as a means for pain. The one thing I will say that I I think was missing in your book and and maybe it was just an oversight, but I found personally, um, when I was in the hospital, even because I was there for six months, um, massage. Massage lowered my pain medication by like double, like wow. really yeah. lowered it. Wow. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, I'll tell you, there are numerous strategies that people can use to help reduce their pain. In my books, I focus pretty specifically on the psychological pathways um, versus, uh, you know, acupuncture or massage or or many other techniques. That's not to minimize the the fact that this can be incredibly helpful, but I I tend to stick to to my area of expertise in my books. So in the brain, the, you know, it's interesting. Um, and, and I, I want to talk about this for a moment, if it's okay with you, because I want to talk about the difference. I, I, and I believe there's a difference between dependency and addiction and absolutely, you know, people who take these, these drugs are, are dependent upon them, physically dependent. Um, and yet not everybody has an addict mentality. Like I've yeah. never taken an extra pill. As a matter of fact, she gave me pills and I go, I never even took them. So I know that I don't have an addictive personality. Uh, I know that some people do. Uh, so what do you, what do you think? I mean, um, originally my pain doctor said to me, you know, Frankie, think of it like, um, cause my family was so against it, but you know, he said, think of it like you're, you know, you're a diabetic and you need insulin. Like why, why should this be different for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're right. There's a there's a huge difference between addiction and physiological dependence. And 
if anyone takes opioids long-term, regularly long-term, you'll become physiologically dependent. That's true for you. That's true for me. Right. That's true for anybody. Um, mm-hmm. But that's fundamentally different from a psychological and physiological phenomenon of addiction. And so, uh, unfortunately, these concepts kind of get confused in the media and also among patients who really worry that they may be addicted. And so it's been a lot of time providing education. The majority of people are, are not addicted, but absolutely they're physiologically dependent. And so when they try and go down on the medication or if they miss a dose of opioids, they'll have some withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that scares people because they're uncomfortable, they cause more pain, and they falsely lead people to believe that they absolutely need the medication and can't go down or off of it. And one of my main messages is that just because a person is physiologically dependent doesn't mean that they can't very slowly, successfully wean down on the medication, just like you did. Uh, a lot I think of people you did a good job at that. end up tapering off of opioids very slowly. They prevent and avoid withdrawals. And curiously, interestingly, they discover that they often have less pain as they go down and off of these medications. That's such a critical message to get out to people. Let me I ask found you that this. very interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Fred. In, yeah. In the beginning, you said that people need access to the right information, and that way they'll be able to take less meds. Um, where, because we're bombarded by information, A, where can they get it? How, how can they get the right information? You, Where can they get it? Question. And, and, it and also, the entire uh, reason I wrote my first book, which is called uh, Less Pain, Fewer Pills, because I was working with patients day in and day out, chron- people with chronic pain who were taking opioid medication, and they would look at me, many of them upset, and they would say, if I had known uh, about the problems associated with these medications, I never would have started them. And they were talking about some of the negative side effects, you know, that they were very sleepy, that they had extreme constipation, that they felt stigmatized, that it was impacting their ability to do certain things rather than make it easier for them to do certain things, that they were having um, some depression or anxiety, that their hormones had changed. And what I realized was that there really wasn't a central place for people to discover all of the risks and consequences of opioid medication. And so that's why I wrote the book, and the whole first half of the book is just opioid education. I I always say I'm really not invested in whether or not people take opioid medication, but I'm highly invested in people making informed choices, being in control of their choices, and helping them with alternative pathways so that they can minimize their risks. I feel that that's absolutely critical. I agree. And I think you did a really good job of that. I think, you know, learning to breathe through pain and learning to uh, relax and, and, you know, because I, I know like, you know, when you're in pain, you tend to tense up and your shoulders and your neck and it affects, you know, every area of your body, really. Uh, and so when you can relax that, then it eases a, a lot of symptoms. 
for sure. Yeah, you know, it's true. And, and it even goes one step beyond that. You know, our, our brains and our, our spinal cord, our nervous system, is really primed to react to pain because, you know, it, it's, pain is a signal that has helped us survive. And so it really gets our attention. And I'm going to have to cut you off because we're going to commercial. But, but I, I want to talk about chronic pain. The amount of attention we give the pain can serve to amplify the pain. So we've done a lot of neuroimaging studies. There's a lot of Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. have a lot of spizzerinctum or the will to win, and you have a strong desire to be a part of your favorite sports team, the National Hockey League might be for you. Did you know that if both goalies on an NHL hockey team are injured, anyone at the game is eligible to step in and play the part? Teams have resorted to using their coaches, team owners, and even their web designers to fill in for injured goalies. It's as simple as slipping into your breezers or hockey pants. The original hockey puck was made out of frozen cow dung. The fastest puck shot on record was clocked at 114 miles per hour. And I'd like to take this opportunity to send out a special thanks to the men and women of our armed forces serving our country around the world. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Nuts are an overall good choice for snacking. Almonds are my favorite nut, and I try to include them in my daily eating. Almonds have more calcium than any other nut. They are low in carbs, but high in fiber and protein. Studies show that eating almonds and other nuts will give you a feeling of fullness longer and help you eat fewer calories throughout the day. 12 almonds are under 100 calories and very satisfying. Peanuts are another good choice. Health Magazine says that like most other nuts, peanuts are also full of brain-boosting healthy fats and vitamin E as well. One ounce of peanuts, about 28 unshelled nuts, contains about 170 calories, 7 grams of protein, and 14 grams of fat. Eating nuts helps your brain power and reduces inflammation. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Like us on Facebook. Okay, and we're back with Dr. Beth Darnell. We were just speaking with her, and Jacob Kramer's coming up in a moment. And of course, Frederick Bai is here. So we were just before we went off to our commercial break. We were talking. I, I believe we were talking about the, the psychology of pain and and um, you know how how those pathways and and does, is it, are you recollecting anything? Here? <laughs> we were trying to interrupt you. I forget now. Um, uh, Fred, yeah, do you remember her last words? I, okay. You know, one oh. of the things okay. that's, that's interesting to people is. The fact that how we focus our brains, uh, our attention, and, and and how we're really attuning our brains can either make pain better or worse. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important that people learn the right skills to be able to control what's happening in the mind, to be able to calm the nervous system, because it actually can directly reduce 
pain processing in the nervous system. And when we are able to reduce our own pain, we reduce our need and use of medication. Mm-hmm. And that's a really lovely thing for people to be able to learn and apply in their daily life. So uh, just, to, just to make sure and clarify for everybody who's listening, people who have read your book or thought about reading your book, you are not opposed to taking medication. You're just saying that there's other methodologies that you can use in conjunction to lower your need for, for taking pills and things like that. Is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. It's, it's in everyone's best interest to, to need and use as little medication as possible. I, I know that, you know, people don't want to take pain medication, no. but they just want less pain naturally, right. of course. And so what we know from the research is that pain is not best treated by pill alone. It's best treated with a multimodal approach. And I'm really passionate about helping empower people to learn skills and information so that they can best control their own experience. Pain medication may still be one part of the equation, but it's just one part. It's not the whole story. Like, I know that you mentioned in your book about doctors that, that they're not, you know, they get like about an hour on pain, you know, when they're going through school. And But the other side of that is that it's so difficult for them to hand out opiates and things like that now or any kind of um, uh, you know, narcotics that they, that they just don't do it. You know, they just yeah, don't do yeah, it. Well, and, and so they're like, no, I don't even want to start CDC that. issued guidelines on prescribing opioids for chronic pain. And while there's no laws against it, there's a strong recommendation that they be minimized for chronic mm-hmm. pain because the data, uh, research studies, uh, results from research studies suggest that they simply don't do a very good job long term and there are a lot of risks associated with them. Now, you know, these are big studies that include, you know, hundreds and thousands of patients. I know on an, you know, I've worked with people for 10 years and and I have seen people who really need the medication and and do well on it, but they take it mindfully. And again, it's one Mm -hmm. part of, of their plan, but to simply write a prescription and send people away, and that's the only strategy. We know that yeah. doesn't work well. Um, but you're right. Now there's more pressure to not prescribe at all, and that makes it that much more important that patients learn everything they can to best help themselves. It seems to me that now, as a guy looking from the outside in, that the Western uh, med, you know, medicine is still shy because you talk about mindfulness and meditation, and you know they're still shy of those of the Eastern type. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. still. It seems it seems that they, they want you want um, to give it. It's been coming forward in in recent months. Is it the best? evidence is is showing that uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction and cognitive behavioral therapy are effective for reducing pain intensity in people with chronic pain. I mean, it's just, it's really becoming clear. These are high-quality studies that are being published in top medical journals, JAMA, uh, pain medicine, etc. And so more and more, the evidence is, is coming forward to help enlighten the medical profession and the public. Right, right. Um, let, let, let's dive a little bit deeper into mindfulness to help with. No, Fred, pain. we're going to bring we're going to bring Jacob gonna... on. 
Okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, we're going to bring Jacob on. Sorry. We'll come back to that. So let, let me introduce you to Jacob. Jacob Kramer is a 16-year-old high school junior from Pepper Pike, Cleveland, who calls himself an ordinary teen. He likes writing, traveling, baking, playing in his high school's marching band, and running cross-country. But he, I think he, that he's anything but ordinary. He's extraordinary. He runs and operates a global nonprofit organization he calls Love for the Elderly, which today has impacted over 15,000 seniors. Let's welcome Jacob and find out how he started this great organization. Hi, Jacob. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You're off school today? Yeah, I am. Great. Awesome. So Mm -hmm. you started, um, uh, you know, your nonprofit. How how did it begin? Tell Tell us your story. So initially, um, when my grandfather passed away in August of 2010, I was inspired by his death to do something in his honor that would make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I started volunteering at my local nursing home, Montefiore, and it was there that I really realized that so many seniors are lonely and isolated, and it it was really heartbreaking for me because I consider myself kind of sheltered, and I'd never experienced that sort of the isolation and loneliness and depression that I saw in this nursing home. So I began conceptualizing ways that I could make a difference in the lives of the elderly. So I sat down in my living room one night and started just writing letters of kindness, and from there, Love for the Elderly was born. Wow. You um, in your, in one of your TED talks, uh, I love it. I watched. Well, he does, he's them. sixteen. He does a TED talk. I love it. I'm sorry. I said sixteen years old, and he does TED talk. Yeah, and <laughs> you, you talk about the sunflower analogy. You got to tell great. us that. Talk uh, to us about yeah, it. Yeah. So, um, sunflowers. Uh, I think they're a great analogy for so many things in life, but um, specifically how they bloom and blossom. Um, they're they're really beautiful. And just like a sunflower, when you tend to um, an elderly person or any person, really, they are really able to shine and let their true inner self shine as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you you started Letters of Love, where you have gotten other teens and, and young people from, I think, South America to write letters to American uh, elderly to uh, seniors, so that they can, you know, practice their English, and these and these folks get get nice letters. You started Senior Buddies this year, I think, and Sunshine Box. So you've got three programs going. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your programs. Yeah, sure. So Letters of Love, um, that was my initial program. What I talked about writing letters to my local nursing home. Since mm-hmm. then, it's expanded, and I've received fifteen thousand letters from fifty-one countries and six continents. Wow. And these are just letters of kindness and love that I send out to nursing homes across the globe, and they're just intended to put a smile on the elderly recipient's face. So these then, are handwritten letters. Yeah, they're all handwritten because I'm trying to to bring back the art of handwritten letter writing. Nice. Hey, man, wow, that's that's nice. That's nice. Great. And so, senior buddies. Now, what what's that, that program? Senior Buddies, I started it this year in February, and basically I um, paired with a, um, a school in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's a really poor school, and these students are just learning English, and they are pen pals with some seniors in Portland, Maine, and they've been writing for months. They got the chance to Skype, and it's been really amazing. They were featured in a um, national Brazilian TV show, which was really incredible because it was great publicity. And, um, yeah, so it's been really great to watch their relationships mm. blossom. 
That's awesome. And now your sunshine box? Can I I just say one thing, Frankie and Fred? Yeah, please. Go ahead. Well, first of all, Jacob, what you're doing is amazing. And and I also want to say this is so relevant to pain. First of all, people have more pain. And one of the things that we know is that social isolation amplifies uh, pain intensity and and just also distress about pain. And, And what I love about what you're doing is that you're connecting people in this beautiful way and that can be powerful medicine for them socially but also to help alleviate suffering so i just want to say thank you for all that you're doing oh thank you so much for your kind words i appreciate that one point, i told you that there was a connection <laughs> one, one topic i think that you're so right on point because my family is from africa and my step family is from the Caribbean, and I'm I see the elderly over there compared to the elderly here, mm-hmm. and you know it's almost like here we lock them in the nursing home somewhere and we kind of leave them there. But when when they're over there, you know, in Africa or the Caribbean, man, the, the elderly people they're the voice of wisdom. <laughs> I mean, they're the when grandma speaks, you listen. <laughs> yeah, you know? totally. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that because I know you talk to us about you talked about it on your TED talks hello about how we how, how we treat our elderly yeah the, the elderly in America versus the versus elderly, in, elderly other in other countries yeah, yeah so other countries the elders are really regarded as like with the utmost respect and they're really um, looked up to and then sadly here in America and some other um, civilized nations it's not it, that's not the case which is, it's really sad and heartbreaking to me because it's just the way that our society runs and functions and something needs to be done to change that. So yeah. that's what all of my programs and initiatives try to combat, to to bridge that gap of isolation and really make sure that the youngest and oldest populations are still connected and, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I know that you want to make sure we talk about Sunshine Box. Let's talk about that just before we go to our next commercial break. And then when we come back, we can talk about how these things are all funded. All right, sure. So Sunshine Box is, um, it actually launched recently, September 24th. And basically, I create these boxes of sunshine. And they're filled with little goodies like um, some yellow neon sunglasses to make sure that you're never too old to be a little bit silly. And a neon yellow stress ball with a smiley face on it. Um, to squish on hard days. And I distributed those to one of my local nursing homes, McGregor. And it got a hugely positive response. Lots of seniors were crying and they hugged me. And it was just really um, sweet and very well received. So I'm looking forward to expanding that program. So Um, everything in your sunshine box is yellow? Yeah, everything is yellow. It's all vibrant and fun. Um, and yeah, cool. that's fun. That is yeah. fun. And, and, and awesome. you know, I, I, do you find that the, that the seniors kind of revert to being children when they get things like that? <laughs> you know, actually, yes. Um, yeah. there was like a little yellow lay in the sunshine box and they all put it on their ne- necks and they put the sunglasses on. They took some selfies with me. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, Jacob, that's amazing. Well, when we come back, we're going to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how, how you might fund something like that, how you're raising some money to, to do any in all of your programs. And then we're going to talk, you know, between you and Dr. Beth about, um, you know, this relationship, because I did want to talk about the relationship of seniors and pain and the emotional aspect of, you know, the things that you're doing. So don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. This is Frankie Sense and More. I am your host, Frankie Picasso. My co-host is Frederick Bai. And we will be back oh, in just a second. Just getting warmed up. Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. 
Have you ever found yourself in an airplane seated next to a non-stop talker that you really don't have anything at all in common with? When I fly, I usually want to catch up on my reading and not have to listen to an explaterator. It's even worse if they're a philodox. That's a person who just loves their own opinion. Well, now a Facebook app lets you choose your own seatmate before you fly. According to an article in USA Today, social media startups are bringing together compatible flyers before they take their seats. That's good news for people lovers, otherwise known as philodemics. A number of apps such as Plainly and Satisfy are helping travelers meet not only online, but in person. Think the Match.com of travel. I love flying and have been to almost as many places as my luggage. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many men and women drink diet sodas almost on a daily basis because they have zero calories and are thought to be harmless. But the truth is, they are not harmless. The University of Texas found that people who consume just three diet sodas per week were more than 40% more likely to be obese. The artificial sweeteners that are in diet sodas lead to hard-to-control food urges later in the day. Another study by Purdue found that rats who were fed artificial sweeteners prior to mealtime took in more calories. Every once in a while, drinking a diet soda is fine, but if you're having them on a regular and even daily basis, it's time to switch to water or green tea. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Okay, and we're back. It's Frankie Sensamore, and I'm Frankie Picasso, and we're just speaking to Jacob Kramer. He's our 16-year-old high school junior from Pepper Pike, Cleveland, who is the founder of a global nonprofit organization. How cool is that? So we were just talking about Sunshine Box, and you were putting this box of you know fun yellow, uh, funny things together for your seniors, but you know that can get expensive, uh, one person at a time. So yeah. how how are you going to fund that, Jacob? Uh, so I do lots of different funding initiatives. Uh, most recently, I launched a fundraising campaign with a philanthropic company called See Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, for every purchase that someone made on their website, they would donate $5 to my organization. So I ended up raising $1,500 for Love for the Elderly. Nice. Uh, and that's all going towards my sunshine boxes. And I also have sponsors and also individual donations. So all of that, all that amazing funds, they can be used towards my initiatives. Now, I want to ask you something about young people because, you know, I notice that people, especially in North America, uh, we tend to look at old people (laughs) like myself, tend to look at old people and and go, they're just old. Like they're slow. They're old. You know, they have nothing to say. They don't they're not relevant. I don't want to talk to them. How do you engage your young people into wanting to talk and wanting to write letters? So that's something that's always really irritated me, how how the elderly are so often viewed as just just slow and old and um, irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And especially because of the technological barrier, how they're not using Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter. That is a huge reason why there's this disconnect. So 
I really try to emphasize the fact that our elders have so much that we can all learn from. And that's something that I found, especially with the senior buddy program, is it really resonates with the kids because they they're able to connect and they're able to build those relationships that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And there's just there's so much that we can learn from our elders. And I think it's really important for our youth to gain valuable lessons from them. What did you learn? What did you, from your experience so far, what did you learn that really touched you about the elderly? Uh, if it's okay, I'd love to share like a personal story. Yeah. Of- yeah. Okay, great. Um, so I used to volunteer at my local nursing home all the time. I'd go in every Saturday. I think I talked about this in my TED Talk, actually. And um, there was this woman named Cynthia, and I would always love visiting her room. I'd walk in there every Saturday afternoon, and I'd um, just be greeted with this wonderful smile. And we'd talk about politics. We'd discuss finances. We'd talk about pretty much everything. And I got to know her really well. She got to know me. And it was it was a beautiful relationship. I was really touched by the the mark that she left on me. And sadly, she passed away, which once again, it devastated me, just like my grandfather's mm-hmm. past. But I think those kind of experiences, they motive they motivate you to continue impact and making a difference in the world. How, how many of your friends, um, Jacob, how many of your friends have grandparents and, and, you know, have a relationship, you know, maybe they're divorced parents and they don't have they spend the time with grandparents or they've never had grandparents, grandparents, you know, passed before they were born. Like, do you find that a lot of your friends don't have a relationship with a grandparent? I actually think that at least in my community, I'm not sure if this relates to the rest of like America, but um, for me in Cleveland, a lot of my friends, yeah, they are they are in touch with their grandparents, but a lot of them may live in other states or mm-hmm. just far in general. So I they see it like once a year, kind of a grandparent. It's really hard, especially because of technology. Um, a lot of seniors don't use like FaceTime and texting, and that makes it all the more difficult. Right. But what if you were to teach them? I mean, my dad's like 94 years old this year, and he's got um, – He's got iPads, he's got iPhones, he's hooked up to the Yazoo with technology, and he finds it very easy and he loves it. Like he Skypes with me all the time. So what if you were to teach seniors how to use technology so that they they could, you know, relate more to their grandchildren or to younger people? Definitely. So that's something that I've been considering for a while now, and I'm thinking of hopefully pursuing that in the future and bringing technology to nursing homes and seniors, because I know it's a great way to prevent isolation from happening and keeping Mm -hmm. them in touch with their loved ones. So yeah, I'd love to do something with that um, sometime soon. Uh, Beth, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I know in your book, you talked about the medication and as you get older, medication affects people differently. So when Jacob and his friends are in the nursing home and and maybe, you know, somebody's on medication, um, maybe one day they act one way, another day they act a different way. Like, is there, is there cause for, you know, some kind of, uh, they should be thinking about, do you think, or? Yeah, so older people, particularly in nursing homes, because, you know, they have more medical problems than somebody who's independent, they tend to be on a lot of different medications. And so it's it's kind of, it's what we call polypharmacy, which means that there there's risks for those medications interacting and um, people maybe not having as sharp a mind because of the medications they're on. Um, pain medication, opioid medication, is all 
also can create a fall risk for a lot of elders. They're less steady on their feet. Um, they may have worse balance as a consequence of the medications. And so these are just things for, for people to be mindful of. And it's always, it's always in everyone's best interest, you know, to, to use as, as little of the medication as possible and um, to focus on managing pain in, in different ways. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I love what Jacob is doing because he's, uh, you know, what we know about pain is that it, it's not just a physical experience. It, it affects so many different areas of our life. We talk about it being a biopsychosocial phenomenon, and his work is really targeting some of these social impacts, mm-hmm. these uh, social areas, social connection, which can serve to actually reduce pain, isolation, suffering. Um, it's, it's great medicine for elders. Right. Let me ask you this, uh, uh, Beth. Um, you've been treating adults with chronic chronic pain for 15 years, and uh, you lived through your own chronic pain experience. Talk to us a little bit about it. Yeah, indeed. You know, I had chronic pain when I was younger, really, about Jacob's age and, and even younger. And what happened to me is, is not uncommon, and it is that I had chronic pain, and I went through a very stressful experience in, in my life where, at the age of 19, the person I was closest to was killed. Um, and so, naturally, this was incredibly stressful, distressing, uh, and my pain worsened. It, it really um, was out of control, and I, I simply didn't know what to do or how to control it. Like most people with pain, I just mm-hmm. didn't have the right information. So I sought help at the hospital, and nobody, you know, they ran tests, and they did what doctors are supposed to do, but they really couldn't find any answers. Uh, and they sent me home with a prescription for opioids. And, you know, on the surface, they were doing their job because they're treating pain, theoretically, but actually uh, what I had was pain that was being greatly exacerbated by some of these psychological and social factors in my life. It was grief. It was stress. And so my story serves as an illustration of how, yes, we have chronic pain, but it's everything else in our lives that feeds into the pain experience and can be worsening it without us even knowing it. So we want to be sure that we're treating our whole life and all of these factors. I got myself off of opioids. I had to learn how to manage my pain differently, and I had to do that the hard way because I didn't have anyone to help me. There were no pain psychologists helping me, Mm -hmm. but the information that I figured out that I learned um, is now known to be evidence-based medicine, and it's the information I write about in my books. You know, that's interesting that, that, Jacob, have you ever had extreme pain of any kind? Have you ever broken a bone or anything? No, not really, no. No, you're lucky. (laughs) You're lucky. But, you know, the the thing I, I was, you know, thinking about when you when you were talking about that is is the band-aid right they're they're covering the pain but they're not finding the cause of the pain yeah so it's it's like they never seem to get curious enough to do that and often it's it's not necessarily possible for us to find a root cause or to eliminate Mm -hmm. pain but what's so important for all all people to understand 
is that the choices that we make, the thoughts that we have, the emotions that we have, our level of physical activity, our social experiences, our entire lives, everything has the capacity to either make our pain better or to make our pain worse. And so simply focusing on pills misses this massive opportunity for us to manage our pain differently and for us to actually gain better control of our own experience. You provide psychological services to patients with catastrophic burn, spinal cord injury, or amputation. What are those, what are those services? What do, how do you help somebody? I'm sorry, can you say that one more time, Fred? No, you, you provide psychological services to patients with catastrophic burns, spinal cord injuries, and sure, amputations, sure, stuff like okay, that. I got it. Yeah. So, so actually, we treat pain the same, no matter what is the cause of the pain. In, in the past, I, I worked really with very severe medical conditions, so spinal cord injury, people who uh, had the catastrophic burn and were uh, being treated on a burn unit, people who had amputations, um, major surgeries. Today, I work mostly with people in an outpatient setting who have chronic pain, but also with women who have breast cancer and are going into surgery. And, and, and what we know is that some of the biggest predictors for whether our pain gets better or how much pain we have after surgery or how quickly we recover from surgery, it, it tends to be the psychological factors. The power of our mind is incredible. We, as humans, we tend to think of pain as being sort of a passive process, something that happens to us, or when we go to surgery, that it's just something the doctor does to us, that the surgeon does to us, but the research tells us that it's what we bring to the table. It's, it's what's going on in our nervous system that has a profound influence on our response to all types of treatments, whether it's opioid treatment, whether it's surgical treatment, any type of treatment. And so we want to be sure that we're optimizing our psychology so that we can have a best response to these treatments. So one of the ways that we optimize psychology is to be able to take a look at what some of our beliefs are, what some of our mm -hmm. fears about pain are, um, fears in general, and to be able to put a container around those, to have to learn how to calm those thoughts and to calm our body when it goes into a state of distress. So these are mind-body skills that uh, we use regularly on a daily basis and that changes pain processing. That's awesome. We're going to go to a commercial break. Nervous system and actually how we're, we're going to go to a commercial break. the brain. <laughs> okay, we're going to commercial. We'll be right back. You're learning to train no, your brain. We're just getting warmed up. Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same, but if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, 
then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. This is the TogiNet Radio Network, radio with a cutting edge. It's merging by the time this show is over, you'll blink at least 30 times. The average person normally blinks about 20 times per minute or 17,000 times a day. A faster rate usually indicates anxiety or emotional stress. What's the word for someone who blinks a lot? A squint of FIGO. FBI agents have identified a specific type of blink that they directly associate with gamma stain. That's a person who tends toward deception and fraud. Attorneys, also known as pedophoggers, look for blinking when they have people on the stand. The eyelash flutter means they really do not like the question at all. Women blink more than men, but when a man blinks at a woman, he always appreciates a wink back. What's another word for flirting? Huzzlecoo. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. And you're still with us. Thank you for sticking around. We are. <laughs> it's Frankie Sends and More, the variety show with Frederick By, your host, Frankie Picasso. Yes. And today we have Dr. Beth Darnell and Jacob Kramer with us. And we were we were just heading out with uh, Dr. Beth was telling us about the psychology and about how you think positive and, and, and the way that you think going into a painful situation uh, is really how you're going to result coming out of that painful situation as well. But I know Fred wanted to talk to Jacob about his grandpa. Yeah, Jacob, um, you know, your grandfather has been such a it's pivotal, pivotal point in your life when he died. Um, talk to us. Why was he so close to you? I mean, why did it touch you so much? I understand your grandfather, but, you know, what was the best quality you saw in him? And how did he live his elderly years until he died? First of all, um, my grandfather and I, we were we were so close um, and I would visit him. Um, as often as I could, we'd go like to weekly walks at the, um, park or the mall. Um, we would go on family vacations together. We went to like Alaska and Hawaii, which was really amazing. Mm -hmm. And through all those experiences, I got really close with him and I really got to know his sense of humor, his altruism, compassion, integrity, and most importantly, his unconditional love. It all just radiated throughout him and to the to those that um, he was near. So that's something that's always inspired me. And it's something that really made me want to make a difference in his honor when he passed away because he taught me so many life lessons and skills and values that are still so dear to me today and that I try to uphold every day throughout my days. Um, so, right. so yeah, Jacob's I really such an old soul. <laughs> You're such an old soul. I want to know though, Jacob, uh, you, you wrote and said that, you know, you've got kind of a quirky family. Yeah. Um, so my family, we're just very different. So uh -huh. my mom is like very artistic and so am I, um, I love like writing and, um, my brother is very athletic. He runs cross country. He's very diligent about it. Um, 
and he's more of a procrastinator than I am. I'm very like, let's get to it kind of attitude. And then my dad, we're, we're just, we're all very different. Um, <laughs> so, so it's an interesting uh, Kramer household. Um, but G- let me give ask us, you this. Let, let, let him give his website first, Fred. Give us yeah, your yeah. website. Uh, so Love for the Elderly's website is lovefortheelderly.org. Um, and then also you can connect with me on social media as well. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. And if people want to volunteer, they can. Uh, yes. So you can visit my website and you can become involved with any of my programs. Or if you want to get even more involved, you can become a kindness ambassador, which means you can do stuff like going into schools and doing letter writing events for letters of love. You can organize a senior buddies group. It's really up to you. So yeah, I love it if um, your listeners can get more involved. Do you have a, do you have a sample of a letter that somebody would write? Like what would somebody write? Basically the letters are all, they're really just kind hearted words filled with love. So um, they'll tell them, they'll make sure that they're, um, for, they'll, they'll maybe include a joke or a riddle. They'll tell them about themselves, their day, their family. And most importantly, they'll let them know that they are loved. So the letters are really special. And my favorite part about them is that they're all handwritten. So they're handwritten. And then are they just, they're distributed or do, do, do the, like, would, would I have a name of somebody I'm writing to specifically, or would it be just dear senior? No. The elderly recipients are all anonymous, so really you're just trying to make it um, oh, okay. without knowing who you're writing to. So, like, a simple dear friend or hello there will suffice. Okay. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, yeah, go ahead, Fred. And, and also, no, I was just going to ask the last part of, of the question I had was, did he die surrounded by his family or, you know what I mean? Or did he die the way you see a lot of elderly people die? Thankfully, I'm so glad that uh, he had all of us there with him in his final awesome. moments, his final uh, precious moments. So, um, yeah, and it kind of shows you just how valuable um, family and friendship can be. How old was and, he? Yeah. Um, he was, I believe he was in his 80s. Okay. Is your grandma still around? Yeah, she is. Uh, yesterday, I was just at her house. We had dinner together. Um, nice. Yeah, so she's still uh, around and lively and healthy and just doing phenomenally. <laughs> oh, I'm glad uh, for you. Beth, I, I want to – Let's ask Beth her website first. Yeah. Uh, my website is bethdarnell.com, and we have some nice redirects. So however you spell it, you'll get there, uh, bethdarnell.com. Oh, Beth, um, you, you you mentioned uh, before the the break. Uh, you were talking about you know the importance of remaining remaining calm with our bodies. How do you do that? Because what what you talk about what you talk about is really about mindfulness. You know, it's really about psychological, as you said as you said at the beginning at the beginning of the show. But how do you do this? How do you remain calm in your body in your body when you're so pain? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And so what we know across the board is that it's less about what happens to us. It's more about our reactions to what happens to us that is so detrimental. And this is a particular challenge with pain, pain that is ongoing, because it's like it's a harm alarm, and it's going off, and it's going to get our attention, and it's going to cause distress. And that's going to show up in a lot of different ways. It's going to show up as psychological distress. It could be anxiety. It could be fear, um, just general stress, and also muscle tension throughout our body, our breathing pattern change. Um, We start to hold a lot of tension in our bodies. And 
over time, these become established patterns of thinking, of feeling, and uh, established patterns in our body. And what we know is that these established patterns prime the nervous system to actually have more pain. So mm-hmm. it's incredibly important that we start to disentangle them, that we start to train our brain and our body away from pain. The relaxation response, relaxation skills are an incredibly powerful tool because they're so simple and anybody, almost anybody can do this. So we begin with some diaphragmatic breathing, use this regularly. It actually calms heart rate, it calms respiratory rate, and it dampens pain processing in the nervous system. So that's a key skill that people can use to calm themselves when they're in pain or in distress. And then what psychologists do is they work with people individually to, again, take a closer look at some of the thoughts that people are having, some of the thoughts and emotions and what those patterns are, those patterns that may be unwittingly worsening pain. And it's it's pretty formulaic. We work to help people shift those patterns and turn them into more helpful patterns that are that really lead to us feeling better emotionally and physically. And that's so critical. Beth, what who who handles pain better, men or women? Ah, well, I'll tell you, Frankie, women have more pain. Um, we have, our pain is more frequent, it's more intense, and it lasts longer. Women are more likely to acquire chronic pain conditions. So women simply bear a heavier burden of pain. But the data tell us that women physically, physiologically, women have greater pain sensitivity than men do. So what that means is that pain is just a bigger challenge for women. And it's that much more important that women learn everything they can, that they become empowered to reduce their own pain so that they need less doctors and fewer pills. I have a question for Jacob uh, while before we go off the air. Um, You know, let's say, you know, I'm Mr. You know, I'm just a little guy here, you know, in Montreal and I want to help the and I want to help the elderly. Uh, what can I do? What what some of the ideas do you have that somebody can do without not necessarily through the internet, but just what can they do to start helping the elderly right now? So I really advocate for trying to help the elderly in any way possible. And it doesn't have to be through my organization. It can just be a simple way by going out to your neighbors, uh, your elderly neighbor's lawn and mowing it for them or um, going over to your grandma's house and having a lunch with them. It's, it can really be simple, and it doesn't have to take a lot to make their day and make them smile. Right, right. Okay. You like to cook. What do you like to cook? Um, well, actually, I love baking. and baking. I bake, um, Yeah, baking. So I bake cookies and cupcakes and uh, pretty much everything, and mm-hmm. that's a lot of fun. Um, my, uh, my house always has lots of sweets, so that's <laughs> 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 all the mothers who are listening to this right now, they're going We're to want all to. going to Jacob's house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. The perfect little boy. <laughs> yeah. Is is there a relationship back between like pain and uh, I'm thinking, you know, weight gain and, and, and I know that, you know, when you have pain, you yeah. don't want to move too much. So, you know, but do and, and does, does it keep, I guess, lack of sleep? Probably doesn't help either. We, we've only got yeah. three minutes left in the show. So, Maybe if you can tell yeah, us quickly. No question. So 
it, our weight, greater weight, is associated with more pain. And there's a couple of different reasons for why that's the case. So if we, if we weigh more, it just puts more stress on different areas of our body. So think about back pain. If we carry a lot of weight in our middle, that's going to put stress on the back. Um, but also the foods we eat can have an impact on our pain. So foods that are associated with inflammation, like sugar and sweet. Um, those, you know, we know that inflammation is associated with greater pain intensity. So there are several books on the market that are, you know, focusing on the anti-inflammatory diet as a pathway right. to improve pain. Um, but no question, sleep also, you bring up a great point that when we don't sleep well, we have more pain the next day. We're more sensitive to everything, to light, to sounds, um, and absolutely to pain. So poor sleep causes something of a systemic inflammatory response that makes us more sensitive to pain. And this is well, problematic thanks. because if you talk to anybody with chronic pain, they'll say, yeah, I sleep really poorly because of my pain. So it can become a vicious cycle, and it's really important to treat it. Thank you. Let me stop you there. I want to thank both of you. Jacob, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And Dr. Beth, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You've both been amazing guests. And what you both do is really so important in the world. You're both changing the world in your own ways. And, you know, that's what I'm all about. I want to make sure people change the world <laughs> and they do whatever they can do. So that's that's amazing. And, and I know, Fred, you thank them as well for coming on. And Absolutely. Uh, thank you yeah. very much, guys. We learned a lot. And, you know, go out and find a, a grandparent today and help them. <laughs> You'll be a senior one day yourself. So <laughs> make sure you treat people. Thank you both. And, uh, Thank and you. also, Jacob, I learned a lot from you today. Thanks again. Thank you. Likewise. Mm, All right. Awesome. Well, we're, we'll be back here next week, Fred and I, and we'll, we'll have uh, – a wonderful singer. Cerise is coming back. You met her a, a couple of weeks ago because her son was autistic, but she's actually an amazing singer. So she's going to be coming back with us. And um, we have, we're going around America. We're taking a trip around the States <laughs> with one of our authors. So don't go anywhere. Come back and see us next week. We'll be here. Take care, everybody. Wherever you are in the world, take your night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. bye everyone. Shit, now you hear one way to turn